For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Anne She Spoke podcast. Today, we have Martha Beck on the show. I grew up reading her column in the Oprah magazine. It was the first thing I flipped to when that magazine arrived each month. And it was such a delight when she accepted our invitation to be on the show. For those of you who may not know who Dr. Martha Beck is, she is a New York Times bestselling author, a speaker, and a life coach. And I would argue that she's probably one of the earliest life coaches and one definitely one of the best known in the world. She holds three Harvard degrees in social science, and Oprah Winfrey has called her one of the smartest women I know. Martha is passionate and engaging, and she is definitely known for her unique combination of science, humor, and spirituality. Her new book, The Way of Integrity, Finding the Path to Your True Self, is out now, and that's what we discuss on this podcast. My favorite part of this interview is when Martha, life coaches Jenny on climate change. It's amazing. Let's listen now to our conversation with Martha Beck. Hi, Martha Beck. Welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I still can't believe we have Martha back here, a little starstruck. So super excited to talk about you and your work and specifically a brand new book that you have that just came out in April. Is that right? Yes. Right there. We are on YouTube, so you oh, can actually right. so. <laughs> do, the, do the Vanna White thing. That's awesome. So maybe if there are some people who do not know who you are, do you want to just give us, I don't know. I don't know who, who I am. Give us- I thought you guys were going to help me. No. <laughs> Little intro. I'm very well known among people who have heard of me. 
I started out to be a sociology professor, got a doctorate in sociology, and three degrees from Harvard and halfway through the third, had a baby with Down syndrome who was prenatally diagnosed. And it made me really consider what human life was about because he could never be an intellectual, which was all I valued. So then I just set off on a lifetime adventure of breaking the rules. I just found it. I decided that the reason for existing, Emerson said, beauty is its own excuse for being. And I decided that joy is the felt equivalent of beauty and the only real reason to be here. So I kept my baby and not, I'm very pro-choice, but I kept that baby and it changed my life. And then I started really paying attention to whether or not I was being true to myself. And that took me on a path that eventually led me. I was a professor, but the students started hiring me to counsel them. And I thought, well, that beats working. So I became a writer and a coach and, and that's where I am. Yes. I have such memories of reading the Oprah. I'm sure everyone tells you this, but like when I would get the Oprah magazine, I would like just, where's, where's Martha Bex? Cause the, the humor that you taught about life was so infectious to me. Like I loved your style of writing oh, and I looked you. forward to it. It's like the first thing I've, I flipped to. Oh, in that magazine. So nice. so, anyway, I'm sure that like you hear that every time you're like, oh. okay, let's talk. Like we need to talk about this book and it's called The Way of Integrity. And I believe it just came out this month. Yep. And when I first read the title, I was like, ugh. I know, Sunday school, right? Integrity. Mm. Integrity. I have a, I don't know, that word doesn't mean anything to me and I struggle with it. And then the first couple lines of your intro, you were like explained it all. So can you talk to us about the word integrity and what it means? Yeah, I don't think it's something, some virtue you strive for in Sunday school. Like I am not religious and I sort of hate that. But integrity just comes from the Latin integer, which means whole or intact, undivided. And the example I like to use is if an airplane is in structural integrity, it could have millions of parts, a big aircraft, and all those millions of parts have to be pretty much in structural integrity, working as one for the plane to fly. And if it falls out of structural integrity, it will falter, it won't take off, it won't be steerable, it might crash. And our lives are the same way. If we can be the same person at all times and places and be true to who we are meant to be individually, then we're whole, we're intact. But most of us are born, and before we can even talk, we receive so many pressures from the people around us, social pressures, that we sell out our true selves and genuinely believe that we want to do what the culture wants us to do. So we have nature here and culture here. Integrity is one thing, undivided. But we split into duplicity, two things, divided. And as Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So then our lives go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and they wrapped it up right there. <laughs> the end. So much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk more about this, this culture piece? Like, I love this idea that you're sort of like at odds with culture. Yeah, culture to a sociologist means any pressure that comes from any group of people, even a couple has a couple culture, families have cultures, neighborhoods have cultures, schools, ethnicities, religions, they all have cultures. And the function of culture is to get people to move in harmony with each other. And so to do that, it sort of pushes people away from their individual paths so they can conform to one path. And it works really well for, for the culture as a whole. Unfortunately, when it pulls us away from our nature, it's disastrous for us. 
So like I was a bookish kid who loved school and great. It went really well with the culture. I didn't have to split myself at school, but since then I've had hundreds of clients who had for, for any one of a million reasons, they just weren't built for that environment and they hated it. And they had to sell themselves to the company store, to the school, to the system in order to be approved of. And that is where a lot of us continue to split ourselves through our whole lives. We want to be approved of, and we don't even look at whether or not we genuinely want to do what we're doing. And this is more, as I read this, I read it through sort of a feminist lens. And I think for women, this is extremely hard to even like, I can do that because our whole lives we have been taught, you should act this way, be this way. Your value, everything about you is dependent on others approving. Yeah. So to go against culture, yeah, the norms is like, no, because I will like, no. Right. Yeah. It's not easy. And men and women have different pressures. Women are pressured to give up their individuality, their happiness for the happiness of others. Men are socialized to ignore the feelings of others so that they can succeed as individuals. And both of these are sort of perversions of our true nature. So what happens is men get really narrowly crowded into these achievement boxes and they're not very happy. And women get completely obliterated to the care of others. And then if you want to be successful in a culture that is male dominated, you try to do both. So now you're selling your entire happiness for other people, but you're also trying to ignore other people so that you can achieve as an individual. And what this, this is what I did my PhD dissertation on. It, it literally just rips you apart because all these conflicting value systems have so much to say about what you should be. And they never ask you. That's a problem. So Martha, we work with entrepreneurs and we are entrepreneurs and we have an online teaching platform where people can become entrepreneurs. And I'm just wondering in your work, in your body of work, have you seen this culture trend in a certain, in a particular way? How do you see this bifurcation affecting those of us in the entrepreneurial space? Well, I mean, it pushes people into the entrepreneurial space because large organizations. So the whole culture is in this pyramid with the the most wealthy and powerful at the top and everybody else trying to get to the top. Unfortunately, that's not a way to happiness, but we don't know that. Anyway, so we're, we're trying very hard to be individuals that achieve. We're trying very hard to take care of our loved ones, which means abdication of self. What happens then is one of two things. You'll either try to make a career that encompasses everything and balances it all, which is impossible because all the values are mutually exclusive, like they destroy each other. But what I found when I did my dissertation research is that some percentage of women, and this was a few years ago, they stopped paying attention to any social cues whatsoever. They went off by themselves and they developed a sense of truth. And this is what this book is all about, a sense of your own truth a place where everything resonates with you and you know you are, your body, your heart, your mind, and your soul are in alignment. And there's this bong. And then they would come back and they didn't all do the same thing. They would do what was true for them. So the method that they used, always going inward, finding the truth, and then enacting it was the same, but their lives became wildly differentiated. And a lot of them ended up starting their own companies or or working as sort of solo entrepreneurs and doing it successfully because we happen to be at a technological point in our culture 
where like the two of you can do incredible things with communication technology, reaching far more people than you ever could have even 50 years ago, right? So the pressure to be an entrepreneur is bigger than ever, but the opportunity to create your own life and career has never been bigger. So it's, it's actually a benevolent problem. It's forcing us to find ourselves. I love that so much. That's what a beautiful explanation and what a beautiful way to relate to that word and that phenomenon. Thank you for that. So I want to talk more about like, so I get that, that, that can like, oh, I'm going to start my own business because I've had the bong moment, but can you give our listeners some advice when they have the bong, start a business and then they're like, oh my God, people might hate me. I might have to do this thing and they're going to judge me. Right. And so then like, how do we talk ourselves back into that? It's sort of like, to me, it would be like this ebb and flow. I'm out, I'm in, bring myself back. Oh, here I go again, listening to them, bring myself back. Yeah. It's not just bong. It's bong, bong, bong. (laughs) You have to come back over and over. (laughs) I I structured this book around Dante's divine comedy because I actually think, and I'd always read the divine comedy as self-help because I need help. So he starts out going, I I came to in the middle of my life and I didn't know where I was and I was in the dark and I hated it. So he opens with a midlife crisis, tries to get out of it by achieving. He tries to climb this big golden mountain that everybody's trying to climb, but he can't do it. And he ends up meeting a guide who tells him he has to into the inferno. He has to go into himself and deal with his own demons. And they go deeper and deeper and deeper in the earth. And he deals with more and more and more of his demons until going through the center of the earth, they're now going up, even though they're headed in the same direction. The next stage is called purgatory, which simply means cleansing. And in this book, I use that phase to talk about once you have had that chime of truth, that long how do you walk your talk? Because there is something absolutely certain. And that is that the reason you abandon yourself is to please other people. And those very people are probably still around you. Therefore, when you begin to violate the system of behavior that you learn from them, it will go directly in opposition to what they think is right. When this happened to me, I was 29. I decided not to lie for a whole year and I didn't. And I got healthier and happier on the inside. But on the outside, I left my religion, my family of origin, my home, my marriage, my career, my industry. What else? Every friend I had ever made before the age of 18. I mean, it was really, it was a hell of a year because I was way out of integrity. But what I learned, this says this in the Bible, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Getting my soul back was worth all that loss, as hard as it was. Did you write a book about that whole year? I did. It's called Leave yeah. the States. Yeah. 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 I, I, I need to look for that. I also downloaded the Divine Comedy because I just, I've been curious about that. And so now that you've sort of based this book off that, I'm like, I have to totally have to read that. No, there's a lot of weird in there. <laughs> I know, but I just, I'm curious now. I just need to look at it. Read it all as a metaphor. Yeah. 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 Mentors. You talk about what, what I found so interesting. I forget what stage this is in, maybe the inferno stage, but the mentors and how they are not the same values as us. Well, in Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces, the hero's saga that's in every culture, every legend system, uh, the hero goes into the, the call to adventure comes. He says no, or she says no, because it would disrupt everything. Call comes again. The hero says, okay, but they don't know what to do. 
At this point, the teacher appears. And in Dante's case, it's the ghost of the poet Virgil. And obviously he met, met Virgil in real life only by reading his work. So what I've found is that when I become willing to change, so something doesn't feel good, I'm in the dark wood of error, I'm uncomfortable, and I don't know why. The first thing I do is open myself. And I say the first step on your path to integrity, which is much gentler than mine was, is just to say, I'm lost. I'm scared. I don't like this. Like part of it's okay, but I really don't like other parts. I need help. And at that point, you open yourself to receiving a teacher. And for me, it's usually a book, but sometimes it's a person. And the thing they will do is not say, oh, yes, I'm going to help you achieve all your goals. They, they will kind of slap you around and say, why are you pursuing those goals? You don't like that stuff. And you'll be like, oh, oh, that's not what I've been taught. But the teacher has to come from outside the culture because the culture is what's made you betray yourself. But it feels weird at first. I don't know why, but that like really struck me like, wait, like all those mentors are those teachers that appear like your great example of when you were pregnant and you learned that your son had Down syndrome and you had the Mormon church saying, don't you dare. And the, the Western medical saying you better. And like that, like that conflict and you finding your way through that. I thought that was such a beautiful example. Yeah. I really had to figure out, you know, if it had been my own health only, I don't think I would have thought as deeply, but biologically, we're so programmed to attach to our children. I already had one child and I, I was almost six months pregnant. So I was really in love with this baby already. And then I will, and I put this in the book, but <laughs> it's weird to talk about still. I, from the moment I got pregnant, I started having psychic experiences, like really, really dramatic ones. And it flew in the face of everything that I believed you know, Harvard academic now being able to see things that other people are seeing when I think about the person. And I was very curious and it definitely coincided with the pregnancy. So now I had my biology, but also my spirit say, or, or my some deep numinous psychology saying there's something going on here that you do not understand. And it's definitely not Mormonism, but it's not Harvard either. And I wanted to continue to have this strange experience. And so Adam my son, I consider him a great teacher for me, a great uh, mentor, Pro probably the best one in love my that. life. Yeah. So here's one thing that I struggled with in the concept of this book that Jenny and I were just chatting before. When we are able to find ourselves to the place of integrity as whole, are we happy all the time? Hmm, that's such an interesting question. What happens as you get into truth as you begin to have many more experiences that have been described in many cultures all around the world, except in Western materialist culture. And that is an experience of the, the spiritual or the numinous, as I just mentioned. As soon as people start getting really rigorous about what is true for me, they typically start to have these unbelievable synchronicities, coincidences, feelings of being helped, bliss, comfort. These things start to happen to you when you go that way. What was the question again? I completely forgot. Yeah, the question is just more, you know, when you're in that place of integrity, oh, yeah. you feel like you've gotten there. Are you happy all the time? Is it always easy? So here's you, what happens. Yeah. When this numinous thing kicks in, it creates this incredible peace. And the one I, I ask people when I coach them very often, I'll say, I'll look for the one thing that brings them a sense of truth most clearly. And the thing that resonates with pretty much everybody 
homeless people on the street, beggars, billionaires, everybody in between, is the sentence, I am meant to live in peace. That feels true to everyone. Now, if you go into that peace, what happens is that your emotions are still on a roller coaster. Happy, sad, happy, sad. But you are no longer identified with the person on the roller coaster. You're watching from a safe space. Mm -hmm. So as Eckhart Tolle says, the opposite of life, of death is not life. The opposite of death is birth. Life has no opposite. So it goes birth, death, birth, death, happy, sad, happy, sad, always in duality. But you become identified with the field through which your emotions are moving. So instead of feeling victimized by them, you feel compassion for the part of you that's experiencing them. And that compassion is very, very deeply calming. And so what you end up with is not like you don't just take a bunch of Oxycontin and feel better, but whatever suffering you're going through becomes the raw material for joy, wisdom, depth, courage, compassion. And that never stops. That gets better and better and better the more you go into your integrity. So I have a follow-on question to that because in addition to entrepreneurship and this work that, that we do together, I have a, a background as an activist and as a climate justice activist ah. from being a really young child. And so I'm wondering how does this relate to like social change and social activism and like that, that um, those movements that feel very much rooted in anger? Well, there are, as I say in the book, there are two ways to be angry and one will save your life and the other will ruin it the way that will ruin it is to go into, you activate a part of the amygdala that one psychologist calls the righteous mind, where you're just raging and chanting and, and you have a target of blame that you're always attacking in your mind and it's attack, attack, attack. So there's a whole, the circle of hell in Dante where the violent live, everyone is always attacking everyone else and that's all they do. Now, everything in the inferno has a reflection in purgatory. And when he gets to purgatory, to the place where people cleanse their anger, he learns what positive anger is. And positive anger does not pass judgment, but it makes judgment. It looks at this and says, that is not just, that is not fair. And I will take action on it. The difference is the anger that is toxic always turns us into victims and other people are our persecutors. But the anger that heals, we know we're not victims and we become creative. So the solution to, to a, a situation that's really, really bad is to find your own value system and then say, within this value system, what can I make to create a better world? Because violence only destroys and yeah. creation has no part of that. And so it moves you into a space of creation and there's always that going on in human culture, which is why Gandhi said, you know, tyrants and murderers may seem omnipotent for a while, but in the end, they always fall. Think of it always. I think that for me, it's like there's an allowance for other people to have their opinions, right? However, right. you personally disagree. It doesn't match with your values, but allow them to have it. The more that you're like, you are so wrong. You are so wrong. You have to change. Right. That's where this angry, like this resistance comes. And I've always explained it that way is like, I will be angry for a minute and then I'm going to change my thinking. So I become creative and I can figure out what can I do in this situation yeah. because systemic change cannot happen when we are angry and like this. Right? Yeah, I mean, we can't, it's like trying to build a flying airplane out of broken parts. If you're stuck in a rage, 
there's a whole system. There's an exercise in the book where I have you write a letter to the people. You think, well, let's do it right now. If you think about climate change, so Jenny, tell me who are the bad guys and what are they doing to the earth? I don't think about it in terms of bad guys, but I think about it in terms of sort of like past generations. Okay. Like I, the anger that I have and that I had as a young person was rooted in the fact that I felt defied by, you know, eld- elders really. So what's going wrong with the earth? What is it that makes you angry? Which just means you recognize an injustice. Yeah, just that, that costs are externalized onto future people or people who have bared the least amount of the burden. So, you know, people in Bangladesh who produce almost no carbon emissions have the most immediate impact of climate change Mm -hmm. in the form of rising sea levels. And like, it feels so unfair and it feels like there's a lack of responsibility on behalf of the people who are, you know, creating most of the problem. So what in your mind, what should be done to make it right? This idea of sacrificing, that people who have the means and the ability to make sacrifices, so to pay higher costs for certain things or to refrain from flying on airplanes when they don't need to, you know, or like a thousand other small or big things, that those who have the capacity to make those choices should make them. So put less stress on the system, cause less damage, keep things more naturally aligned. Let, let the ecosystem that is there flourish as itself and stop interfering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we were talking before the broadcast about how hard you guys work. Do you ever get exhausted? Yes. <laughs> Never. Do you, and, and I don't even know if you have kids or if yes, you're what? We both, we both do. Yes. Okay. So how many kids do you have? We each have one. Okay. How old's yours, Jen? Jenny? Eight. Okay, so you've been eight year old child, you have this incredible career, you're doing all this stuff. Do you ever place stress on your own system? Yes, every day. Do you ever inflict any kind of suffering or overwork on the animal of your body? Yes. Okay. Constantly. All of us are microcosms of the world inside ourselves, and you cannot build a working airplane out of broken parts. If you want to teach people to tend, a natural ecosystem. This is the natural ecosystem you have to learn to tend because it's the wisdom that comes from finding a way to be kind to your body mm-hmm. that allows you to figure out ways to be kinder to the earth. So in my life, I've never been able to solve a problem outside me until I'd solved it inside me. And that's, that's what the whole, the second half of my book's about is how to become whole and then make the world whole starting from that. Thank yeah, you. So true. I feel so, so lucky true. to have been life coached by Martha back in the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Start Martha. taking naps and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I, I think what a deeply feminist way of coaching too, right? I mean, I mm. think that that's what we learn when we sort of look at feminist literature, that this idea of rest and self-care is actually so such a radical idea. So yeah. I, I love that that's what you're echoing through in your work as well. Yeah. My friend Liz Gilbert says the most radical thing a woman can do is relax. Yeah. Without feeling guilt or without judging herself as lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because otherwise you've got the whole external system mirrored inside you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to get rid of all that. That you go through the inferno to get rid of all the cultural bias 
practices that aren't in accord with your sense of justice and truth. And then you have to live according to that sense of justice and truth. And you will mess up people's lives in the way that they've been living them. You will interfere with the culture as practiced now, but the culture as practiced now is destroying the world. So maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Can we talk generally about the self-help industry? I just been talking with another group about this and I just would love your perspective. The whole self-help industry is most women will pick up a self-help book over a man. And Mm. one of the theories around that is that women see themselves as broken, not whole in your words, out of integrity and that there is something to be fixed. And I would just love your your thoughts because I think that we're not broken, that we just don't fit into the world. The world wasn't made to for us and we are made to feel like we're broken and we need to like turn to self-help and find a way to fix ourselves so we can be happier. Mm, yeah, I don't think it's really about fixing. Right, okay. My, my belief, so Western self-help is built, built on a sort of psychiatric model where someone's mm-hmm. broken and the idea mm-hmm. is to fix them and make them normal you start all messed up and you get better. In Asia, my my undergraduate degree was in Chinese and I studied the language and I ended up absorbing a lot of the philosophy. And the idea there is that you are absolutely pure, whole and in complete command of everything you're meant to do in your life. But it gets gunked up with stuff from the outside. So in my favorite book, The Tao Te Ching, it says in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the pursuit of enlightenment, every day something is dropped. Less and less do you need to force things until you arrive at non-action. When nothing is done, nothing remains undone. I remember reading that and just going, what? But I felt that inside me intensely. Like that book just blew my mind open. And it just, it left me in a place where I didn't believe I had anything left to fix about mm-hmm. myself, but I, I knew I had a lot to get rid of. And so I think a lot of women do go in to try to fix themselves, but if that's why you're doing it, it's not going to work because there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Like you inherently, know, the idea is, inherently we're yeah, worthy. The idea is to drop the mess that culture made of your mind yeah. and be who you were born to be. And there's nothing left to fix ever. Yeah. Okay. I just, yeah, I'm glad that that's your answer because I just wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think that's a message I would love to help, you know, through the podcast and our coaching is like, there's actually nothing wrong with you. Like this is, there's lots to discover and like uncover about ourselves and learn and maybe improve, but not like wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Martha, we were talking just before we hit record about joy and hustle. So for those of you who have followed us for a long time, you know that each episode is a joy and hustle and we sign off everything with joy and hustle. And then I laughed so hard in your book when I was reading it last night, because you have this whole section on joy, hustle, and then you use the phrase joy and hustle. And I had to kind of snicker. So I, can you just talk about joy and hustle? Well, in my book, book, I say you have a choice between your joy and your hustle. So I may be treading on you. No, 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 you're not. I had a friend who was, she was a heroin addict for like 20 years. And then she got clean and sober for 20 years. And she would say, everybody's hustling, watch for everyone's hustle. And so I looked up the word and it has five different definitions in the dictionaries I consulted. The first is to, you know, grab life by the horns and really make it happen and go out there and live life. And it's awesome. Second one is just go fast in a given direction, which we all are trying to do all the time. 
third one is force someone else to go in a certain direction. And then there's prostituting yourself. And finally, there's cheating and swindling. These are all definitions of hustle in English. And I was saying it's the whole spectrum of sort of public behavior in American culture in one word. So what I think is we need to sort of stop going very fast. I myself have never prospered by seizing anything. It's by letting go always. I let go of Harvard. I let go of my family of origin. I let go of my culture of origin. It's always a practice of letting go and letting the river flow by itself. And there's no need to hustle it. So I don't really want to do any hustling. Sorry. No, no, no. We're option one. We're definition one. Your first definition. Okay, good. Well, then this is what I would say. If you find your joy and you will, you will gain fascination, which I've heard defined as attention without effort. And you will go very fast in certain directions. And this is where Dante gets to paradise. Things start to happen very powerfully for him because his whole life is now in keeping with his sense of truth. And magic happens. The world lays itself down at your feet when you get into your own joy. And then, yeah, things will happen very, very fast, but it will be wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And I think just for us, reclaiming that word is, is a bit of what we're trying to do as well. So we don't, we don't support or condone or participate in kind of traditional hustle culture or any of of those lower definitions. Uh Um, But I think we also want to encourage our community to see themselves as entrepreneurs, as founders, as innovators, and to relate to this idea that you know, it's, it's like interesting and fun to share tools and resources and to, to see ourselves in that identity as well. So we're trying to kind of reclaim that word a bit in our community. And maybe we need to add our own, you know, number in the definition. <laughs> Think of it this way. If you learn to surf, all you have to do, if you love surfing, and a lot of people do, I think I would, I love to ski. There are spiritual sports that I love. When you learn to surf, all you do is balance on a board. The wave does the hustling. Mm -hmm. So I really believe that when you find your truth and start to live it, there's a force that does all the hustling for you. And I mean, could you be as powerful as an ocean wave? I couldn't. And really like you, you access this tremendous amount of forward momentum and all you have to do is balance. Yeah. And enjoy. That's great. Yeah. We don't have to do it. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. We don't have to do anything. That is our segue, Jenny. Yeah. All right. Well, Martha, thank you so much for this conversation. At the end of every episode, we ask our guests to share a joy and a hustle. So something that's bringing you joy in your life right now, and you can re-relate to the definition if you want, but just a tool that you use, a book you recommend, um, something that helps you grow in your career or your in your business. Oh, wow. Everything helps me grow in my career. We could we change it to joy and swindle. Let's change it to joy and swindle, Jenny. <laughs> joy and swindle. Joy and swindle. <laughs> yeah, this is part of my joy, certainly talking to other people, but there are things like like dogs bring you joy. <laughs> <laughs> we have a baby in ours, but I mean, like soft and fuzzy things bring me joy. Pretty much yeah. everything in my life brings me joy, to be honest. And my hustle, it's fascination with attention without effort. I go in whatever feels like it's pulling me. And right now I have no idea why it is, but it's painting, 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 painting. I've always been done a lot of art. I know when I met Liz Gilbert, 
I asked her, well, what are you writing? And she said, I'm not writing, I'm gardening. Like all I can think about is gardening. And I've noticed that people who just go with their fascination end up creating things that sell well. Because who doesn't want to, like, if you're doing something you love with people you love in a place you love in a way you love, love sells better than hate. Yeah. Okay. So do whatever, whatever pulls on you, go do it. See what happens. Yeah. That's a great hustle. Martha, where can people find your book, connect with you, watch what you're doing? Where's the best place? MarthaBeck.com or Amazon for the book, right? (laughs) And that is out now, right? It's available, yep, for purchase it should, it's available now and we can all just sit in our houses and get it on Kindle and not kill any trees or airplanes. Uh, there you go. <laughs> thank you so much. We are so honored and delighted that you spent this time with us. And thank you so much for the conversation. And we truly did love your book. Like it is oh, thank amazing. You. It'll be gifted to lots of friends. And oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Thank you, Martha. Bye-bye.